In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. You may be seated. We are continuing this morning our, uh, if you will, our hot air balloon ride over the epistle of St. James. And as I mentioned last week in the introduction to the book, there are many themes in James. Trials and temptations, uh, wisdom, prayer, care for the poor, uh, holiness, the tongue, faith. And this is, I think, the grand theme faith. What does genuine faith look like? How is it tested? How is it strengthened? What does it look like in action? And James is also teaching his teaching on faith that, that action doesn't merely follow from faith, but is a part of genuine faith itself. Faith we know as human beings, as Christians hopefully, we know that faith is important. We know that faith is essential. We know that without faith it is impossible to please God. So says the writer of the book of Hebrews. We know from the great 20th century singer and songwriter and also theologian, George Michael, who said, I've got to have faith, faith, faith. And he's right. We've got to have faith. Though I don't think uh, old George was talking about faith in Jesus. But what is faith? What is faith? Well, it's belief, yes. You know, we speak of of confessing the faith, of believing in Jesus. It is belief, and oftentimes, believing in what you cannot see, and that which you cannot put in a test tube or under a microscope, and behold. We have to believe in things that cannot be discerned carnally, that is, through the natural senses. Faith is, as Scripture says, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. It's, it's apprehension of spiritual truth given by revelation. Faith is this intuitive knowing. But as the 20th century priest and ascetical theologian F.P. Harton writes, faith is indeed more than mere knowing, either rational or intuitive. It is the virtue by which we are united to God, who is infinite truth, and by which we are given, so far as we are able to attain it, communion with divine thought, since by it God reveals himself us. So believing in Jesus, having faith in Jesus, is, is not, even though what we believe and the lens through which we view the world, namely the truth of Jesus Christ, that's important. 
But don't mistake that. Don't mistake faith for mere intellectual assent to theological and biblical truths. What does James say? You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. So it's not just believing things about God, but it's believing in God, which means trust, loyalty, fidelity. You cannot, and what James is bringing out in in James chapter 2 is just an axiomatic principle that you cannot separate. When he talks about faith and works, you cannot separate what you believe from what you do. You may not live what you say you believe, but you will live what you actually believe. You cannot separate faith in God from faithfulness to God. Faith in God versus faithfulness to God. Now James is not, and we'll get to this in a second, he's not talking about works righteousness. He's not talking about Doing enough good things. I I used to teach my students in youth group. uh, I would make this joke about heaven points. It's not that you have to, like a video, life is a video game. You got to score enough points to get in good with God. James is writing Christians. He's writing his beloved brethren. And he's exhorting them with a pastor's heart that what they're saying they believe does not match how they're living. And that faith and works go hand in hand. That is, faith in God and faithfulness, loyalty, fidelity to God. It's all together. As James says, faith without works is dead. So faith, which is a virtue, be so helpful if we just understand it's not compartmentalized to the intellect that it touches the entire person. Intellect, emotion, and will. That faith is cognitive, affective, and practical. Which issues what? An action. It issues an action. That the whole of us, as we just heard the summary of the law, to love the Lord our God, Trust the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. You see, James, uh, very early in Christian history, is dealing with what I think has become over time one of the fundamental misunderstandings of the Christian faith. That being a Christian means you don't have to do anything. That, the, the, that there's no responsibility, there's no accept, anything expected of you. I mean, I heard this sentiment my whole life. But, you know, the Israelites, they had to do all this stuff. They were under the law, and thank God the, the church doesn't have to do anything. Her members just 
need faith. And of course, Jesus did fulfill the law. We're not under the law of Moses. Thank God. But one of the major problems when people talk about, well, we just need faith, the way that they end up defining faith is precisely that which James says faith is not. And Paul, too. I can't take you through the last 500 years since the Protestant Reformation, but there is no conflict at all whatsoever between the teaching of Paul and the teaching of James. Paul's letter, letters to the Galatians, to the Romans, are, are not antinomian, meaning it's not against law as a principle. Paul is teaching that Jesus Christ is both the King of the Jews and the Lord of the world, and therefore, both the Jews and the Gentiles are included in the family of God, not by circumcision, not by adherence to the law of Moses, but by faith in Jesus Christ. That was the big controversy of the early church. Do you have to be Jewish to be saved? Do you have to keep the law of Moses? The answer was no. Christ has Build the law. That to which the law led Israel, that to which the law pointed, has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ by faith. And, and we, are, um, we are a part of God's family, and the, the badge of membership, if you will, is faith in Jesus Christ, trust in Jesus Christ. But as members of the body of Jesus Christ, remember, this is who James is addressing. He's not writing non-believers telling them how to become Christians. He's writing Christians telling them how, showing them how to live as such. And he's saying that as members of the body of Jesus Christ, that we're under the law of Christ, under the law of liberty. At times he calls it the royal law, the law of the king. And that we are to keep that law. That is, we are to follow Jesus. And this is the important thing. In the power of the Holy Spirit, who writes the law of God upon our hearts. Without the Spirit of God. We're unable to follow Jesus. We're unable to obey the Lord. Cannot follow Jesus in the power of the flesh. So James writes, beginning of chapter 2, he says, Have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Apparently there was a problem in the churches. And this is, a, I think, a ubiquitous problem that people treat the rich and the successful better than they do uh, the poor and the not-so-successful. But, but it's, it's coming into the church in a way uh, that's very destructive and contrary to the truth of the gospel and contrary to the way in which the kingdom of God is set up. The rich man comes in and 
We're taking you to the Lexus Lounge. We're going to put you in the box seats. And a poor man comes in. Not, he's not wearing the Gucci. And hey, we're going to put him in the back. Or yeah, you can sit here under my footstool. James says, he, he tries to teach them. Well, he just says some practical things. I, I, I love, uh, you know, what... Uh, was just read in our epistle. He gives them a theological reason why that's wrong. Then he just gives them a practical reason. He's like, why are you guys treating them so well? They treat you terrible. They draw you before the judgment seats. They blaspheme that worthy name by the which you are called. It doesn't even make sense practically that you're doing what you're doing. But but he teaches them that... He sees that there were some Christians that, that weren't, their apprehension of the spiritual truth wasn't coming into contact with their lives. Because he says, hearken, again, this is pastoral. This is not someone writing and condemning. This is someone exhorting someone to be who they are in Christ. He says, hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith? Heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him. And right here again as an aside, I think we see the Sermon on the Mount. Where Jesus says, blessed are the poor. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. Now as an aside, I do want to say this. Neither James or Jesus are teaching salvation through poverty. That, that simply being poor automatically grants one salvation. So just empty out your bank account and you'll be good. Give away all your, you'll be good. There's, in, in scripture, we have categories. I mean, we're foisting them upon, but just to organize, there's the righteous rich. Abraham would be an example of a righteous rich. There's the unrighteous rich. There's the righteous poor and there's the unrighteous poor. The Beatitudes, when, when Jesus says, well, I think this would be the Sermon on the Plain, because in Matthew he says, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. In Luke, on the Sermon on the Plain, which is very similar to the Sermon on the Mount, he just simply says, blessed are the poor. For there's the kingdom of heaven. And the thing you have to understand about the Beatitudes is, is they're not so much rules for ethical living as they are announcements of Jesus' own messiahship and lordship and ministry, that, he, that in me, blessing and salvation are coming to the poor. And these are announcements which are offering to the poor the riches of the kingdom. So James picks up on this in the first chapter of his epistle, admonishing the Christians, the poor to rejoice in that they are exalted, that is, that they are rich in faith. The one standing in the kingdom of God, the honor that sh someone should receive within the church, an encouragement that someone should receive, it's not based on purse, it's not the balance of your bank account, but on piety. We should esteem those 
We should hold in high esteem those who are rich towards God in faith. Also back in James 1, verses 9 through, through 12, I had mentioned this last week that James had been talking about trials and temptations, and, and he starts talking about the poor and the rich. And he's not taking a quick break from his teaching on temptation and the trying of one's faith to just sort of unrelatedly talk about the rich and the poor. On the contrary, in context, he's saying that the faith of the poor is tested by their poverty. And that the faith of the rich is tested by his wealth. So in James 2... He doesn't quickly transition from this conversation on the rich and the poor and, the fa and favoritism to then launch into this theological diatribe about faith. He's been talking about faith the whole time. How does he begin chapter 2? Have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with respect of persons. And he, and he continues this this theme of faith when he says, if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not the things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. And then later James uses this analogy of the body and the spirit, and he says, just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. So the image is that works are the spirit, the breath which give life to the body, which is, an, in James' analogy, is faith. James' main point that genuine faith is transformation. Genuine faith can be seen and works itself. It, it, it works itself out in real life. That faith that doesn't change the way we live is no faith at all. But also, works or action will stir up our faith and trust as well. It, it, it will be the breath that, that animates the life of faith. If you want more faith course, ask for it in prayer, and that would be a way that you're doing something. You're going to the source of it, of God, help me. But I think with any virtue, with faith, which is a, a theological virtue along with hope and love, but even something like courage, fortitude, well, how, how do you get more of that? By practice. You don't just sit around like, okay, I gotta, I'm just going to muster up the faith. Or you want courage, I'm just going to muster up the courage. You do courageous things. Practice doing courageous things, you have more courage. The same thing with faith is, is imagine, okay, 
What would it look like? Okay, I feel like my faith is waning. What would it look like if I trusted God? What sort of things would I say? What sort of things would I do if I trusted God with, I don't know, my family, my vocation, uh, my, my finances, my you know, sense of satisfaction, whatever it is. And then, then do those things. And then by the power, by cooperating with the Holy Spirit that's in work within you, and by force of habit which he is forming, your sense of trust and faith of, in God in your heart will deepen profoundly. There's a reciprocity. Uh, some, some of you guys know, and this is not to bring undue attention to myself, but, but I have from time to time, ever since I was 15 years old, uh, struggled with depression. Uh, I haven't had anything near like what I had back when I was an adolescent. But I, I remember coming to this place of, okay, well, what choice do I have? I don't feel like doing anything. I just want to stay in bed. I remember thinking, and this doesn't mean I'm brilliant or that I'm some utmost character. This is like really basic, I think, just biblical stuff and stuff that goes back to the, you know, the classical tradition of how to live well and how to build virtue and just trying to put some of it into action. But I remember thinking, okay, if I, if I felt better, if I felt, you know, decently happy, if I was at a seven and, you know, right now I feel like I'm at a one, I'd love to be at a 10. We don't have that sort of 10 euphoria every day. We're such at uh, in our emotional state. But if, if I was a seven, what would I go out and do? I'm like, well, I'd go do this with my friends, I'd play these sports, I'd, I'd you know, do some reading for school. And I would just make myself do those things that I would do if I wasn't depressed. You know what, you know what happens? Is that it, it's not a panacea, but you end, up, do, you end up feeling better. Because by force of habit and practice, you, you're building up strength and skill and virtue for living. So that happens with faith. That, that works flow from our faith. And James, later in this chapter, he says, well, yeah, of course, we know the famous passage. Abraham believed God, and it was credit to him as righteousness. But we see that that faith was genuine, that he really did believe in God, that he really did trust in God, that he really did have fidelity to God. Because when God said, offer up your one and only son whom you love, he did it. And we know that Rahab was a prostitute, had faith. How do we know that she had faith? Because we saw it at work, not just in her intellect, but her emotion and her will, and that she, she hid the Israelite spies. She put her life on the line to help the people of God. So you want to deepen your faith or trust in God. One way is just imagining what you would do and how you would live if you did have more trust, more faith, and then go, go do it. And as you walk by faith, in the power of the Spirit, and by force of habit, again, your sense of trust and faith and in God in your heart will, will deepen profoundly. And to see that offering, to see that action, to see that building of habit as, as an, an offering and a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to God. So faith is shown to be genuine by, by works, by what we do. 
I know works, especially if you're from a Protestant background, like just triggers you so bad. So don't think of it just the way you live. But it's also, and this is the new thing, faith is also nurtured by works. It's going to be genuine by works, and it's also nurtured and strengthened by works when we do what God's called us to do. So brothers and sisters, we believe the gospel. That is, if we believe that the crucified and risen Jesus is Lord, then we will do what our Lord says. What does our Lord say? Lord, Lord, why do you call me? We really believe that's true and we, we offer the whole of our life in response and we will look at the world through the eyes of faith okay what's what's true what does the, do the scriptures teach and look at the world and our circumstances in our life through the eyes of faith and we will live in a way that is consonant with what we believe and we will be united with the living Christ in such a way that we will bring forth much fruit. Let us pray. Almighty God, we believe but help our unbelief. We are in various and sundry ways amidst tumult and amidst circumstances and emotions and struggles that test our faith or Jesus Christ increase our faith. Help us. Help us to be connected and loyal to you and in our love for you. That, Lord, we would, as your word says, have faith working through love. That we would love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We would love our neighbor as ourselves. And that we would be transformed and the conduit of transformation to the world around us through the love we love you. We praise you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.